This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a look at trade relationships between English colonists and Native peoples in Virginia. Jessica Taylor, history professor at Virginia Tech, talks about trade between tribes before European contact, conflict between colonists and Native Americans, and how slavery impacted the economy. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Taylor, and this is Misty. And today we're going to talk about the Native American and Anglo-American trade in Virginia and in the Southeast in general. This is part of the Native history class at Virginia Tech, where we talk about things as diverse as tribal sovereignty in the 20th century and diplomacy with the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries, and then the histories of settler and extractive colonialism before that, and then before that, pre-colonial life and um, what life was like across the North American continent. So in this lecture, we're going to be talking about what pre-colonial life was like in what is now the state of Virginia. Then we're going to talk about how English people tapped into those trade networks and transformed Native American life across the Southeast. And then finally, we'll talk about why it matters today. First, we need to outline what the Native American world was like before the colonists arrived at Jamestown in 1607. So the answer is that the North American continent was crisscrossed by trade routes that went all across the mountains of the what we now know as the Appalachians to the Great Lakes, down to Mexico, along the Mississippi River, and then westward in ways that we're still trying to understand. So if you were coming from the Great Lakes and you were bringing copper, which is something that we know that Native American people did before English colonization from archaeology, from testing different types of copper, um, and seeing that the chemical signatures of some are, and that are found in Virginia are very similar uh, to what's in the Great Lakes. You would first come south along trade routes that existed kind of along the spine of the Appalachian Mountains. And then you would end up first, if you were uh, coming into what's now the state of Virginia, in Suan-speaking territory. In 1600, you would see about 15,000 Monacan Alliance members in the area east of the Appalachians and west of Richmond. And the Monacan Alliance was a group of nations that probably governed themselves autonomously. Uh, we know that there were, from John Smith's travels, five major towns. Uh, we know that they uh, were known for burial mound culture, so uh, burying loved ones in burial mounds that still exist on the Virginia landscape today, and we'll talk about that more at the end. Um, and they hunted oftentimes in the area around Richmond. When we say Suan speaker, we mean people that speak a dialect of Eastern Suan, and they tend to have some kinds of cultural and linguistic characteristics in common. If you were to move east, you would end up in Iroquoian-speaking people's territory, like the Nottaway and the Meharan. 
Because the Nauru and the Meharan did not make sustained contact with English people until about 1650, we don't actually know a lot about what their lives were like. We do know from the travel accounts that occurred in the 17th century and afterward that they lived along the Blackwater River. Uh, they would establish themselves at fording places for trade. And we also know that they had access to trade goods like pacoon, which is a red dye that they could tra then trade north. In 1600, the coastal plain was occupied by Algonquian speaking people. And that's where we're headed next. The Algonquian speakers were organized in 1600 by the Powhatan chiefdom, which you may have heard of through either Pocahontas, who was a daughter of the chief, Wahan Seneca, or Powhatan is what the English called him. Um, Powhatan was a powerful leader that was probably very expansionist at the turn of the 17th century. So pretty much right before the Jamestown colonists got there, he had been actively accruing other smaller chiefdoms into his orbit. And the way that their chiefdom worked was that every petty chiefdom, uh, which would be like the smaller districts uh, surrounding the core uh, along the York River, which would be the Pamunkey territory, would pay tribute in corn or luxury goods like copper. So the Powhatan chiefdom was actively expanding out from their core um, along the York and the James River um, in order to both share resources, but also to protect from outsiders. So we know that the Monacans um, to the west and the Powhatans probably didn't get along all the time. And then there's also seasonal warfare that the Powhatans had to deal with from people to the north and northwest, like the Massawomics and the Susquehannocks. At the turn of the 17th century, the Powhatan had around 13,000 individuals spread along 34 districts, mostly along the rivers uh, of the coastal plain. And just like the Monacans, they traveled primarily by water. Although there were roads that probably went up and down every peninsula and then obviously over the fall line uh, to the west, most people probably traveled by canoe. The English saw lots of canoes when they came uh, for everyday things like trade and fishing and uh, visiting other people. When Jamestown colonists arrived and settled on what would become later the James River, they met Powhatans as fellow mariners and fellow traders. If they were assessing the situation objectively, which they weren't, they would see that they had arrived at the fringe of a territory of a very well-connected people and that this people was on the fringe of a very well-connected continent. So for the English, this is an extraordinary opportunity as well as an extraordinary danger because they are at the farthest fringe of what their empire can reach. So while it might seem like 
for James for the whole purpose is to keep people out. What archaeologists have discovered instead is evidence that James Fort and the areas around it were kind of trade hubs. So archaeologists have found Native American ceramics made by Native American women who were either trading the vessels with food inside of them for Englishmen in order for them to eat, or actually cooking inside of James Fort. So this kind of provides the context for how Native American women, like Pocahontas and Native American children, got to know the settlers that came into James Fort was through the trade in foodstuffs and what the English would call petty truck, which would be things like copper kettles, um, which is a recognizable material for the Powhatans. The Powhatans formed alliances through traded goods and gifted goods. Wahun Seneca himself, for example, was seen with a white dog that was gifted to him by the English eating dinner with it. Uh, even later into a few years of working with the English, he poured wine for a diplomatic discussion that he had received from Sir Christopher Newport a few years earlier as a gift. So he understands that gifted goods are part of the ways that people form friendship. And the English also recognized that. The problem was, though, that the English began to flood the market of these luxury goods like copper. And part of how Wilhelm Seneca had kept power was by figuring out and controlling who got what goods when. With the English kind of sailing around and saying, here's this copper, here's this petty truck, it's harder to control who gets what kinds of goods and therefore what kind of wealth and power. And so that's part of the reason that, and obviously the English are expanding beyond James Fort in ways that are problematic for the Powhatans, that they start to sour in their relationships with the English. There are three major conflicts between the English and the Powhatans. The first occurs in 1609, just two years after the English arrive, when they start to get pushy with food at a time when food is relatively scarce. So there's a rift in that trading relationship. The second occurs after Wahun Seneca dies, and this is when his brother, Opakankano, has taken power and decides that the English have overstepped their boundaries. So in 1622, he plans a coordinated attack uh, across the major new settlements that uh, have spread outward from James Fort, and over the course of a day, uh, demolishes 350 people and their settlements, which is about a quarter of the population of the entire colony of Virginia in a day. So that shows you, first of all, how much control and surveillance the Powhatan have over the landscape. But the second thing is that it also diminishes the English's ability to tap into the resources of the environment. One of the things that they do during the attack, for example, is throw all of their equipment for 
ironworks that they had been building into the river uh, near what is now Richmond. So they literally beat back the amount of space that the English have been trying to take up beyond James Fort. Nonetheless, the English try again, um, and in 1644, Opeconcano kills an additional 400 people. But by then, the English population had grown quite a bit, and in 1646, the Powhatan were ultimately defeated. Opeconcano is killed in the conflict, and his successor signs a treaty that says that the Virginia Indians who are still part of the chiefdom, become tributary. The tributary relationship just means that the Native Americans that report to the Powhatan chiefdom are now vassals of the English king, and the English king is sovereign over the land that he has claimed. You might think that people would stay away from one another, Native American and English people, during decades of conflict, but that wasn't always the case, and trade continued anyway. A really great example of this, one of my favorites, is in the 1630s when William Abram, who was an indentured servant, very unhappy with his lot on the eastern shore, decided to steal a bolt of cloth, a dictionary of presumably an Algonquin language, and a boat. And he said that he made some homemade pipes and that he spoke Dutch. And his plan was to use these trade goods, use what he could glean from this language dictionary to ultimately escape to the colonies belonging to the Netherlands, which is now New Jersey and New York. Obviously, he was caught. Um, otherwise we wouldn't know about it, but it still shows us that people think within their realm is the Native American trade, even though he's just an indentured servant. He feels that trade with Native Americans, um, probably specifically Algonquians, can better his lot. By the 1650s, the English are moving northwest into what's now the Northern Neck and Northern Virginia in pursuit of arable land, which is obviously occupied by Native people. And then they're also moving southwest along the kind of North Carolina-Virginia border as we know it today in pursuit of the fur trade. We're very used to thinking about the fur trade in terms of things like beaver and fox. But in the Southeast specifically, this is a skin trade in deer skins. Not that they would turn away beaver and fox and other kinds of richer pelts, obviously, but deer skin was in demand for a variety of reasons in Europe. Uh, among them, vellum or paper, which we now get from trees. In order for the English to move west, they need a lot of help. They need help understanding other people, um, non-English people. They need help uh, with diplomacy. They need help just knowing where to go and how to navigate uh, an entirely new environment. And so where do they turn? They turn to the new tributary Indians that they now live alongside. 
A really great example of this is Abraham Wood, who came to Virginia in the 1620s as an indentured servant. And by the 1650s, he was a successful planter who operated a fort along the Appomattox River. So as we know from James Fort, forts were also oftentimes hubs for traders. So Abraham Wood turns to his nearest Indian neighbors, the Appomattox, and he decides to ask them to guide him west as a trader, kind of on an exploratory mission. So an Appomattox man named Piancha guides him south into that Iroquoian-speaking territories of the Meharan and Nottaway. There they meet up with another guide named Oyakar, who also speaks the Iroquoian languages that are really common in that area. And together, Piancha and Oyakar guide Abraham Wood along the Appomattox River down to the Blackwater River, and then finally to the Roanoke River, which is really nearby where we are now in Blacksburg, Virginia. Although we didn't make it this far west, obviously. Uh, but together, Piancha and Oyakar help Abraham Wood through some maybe politically dicey situations where, for example, someone doesn't want him to continue to go west because they're trying to protect their own trades and alliances. And they help to integrate Abraham Wood's environmental knowledge with his cultural knowledge of the area. And Abraham Wood becomes a trader in the Southeast region. This was happening across the Southeast. So just as Virginians are also moving into the Piedmont South, Carolinian traders uh, based out of Charleston are moving North. And oftentimes they're actually competing for the same skins. For Native people though, particularly the Nottaway and the Meharan, the deerskin trade really changes how they live their lives day to day for the next century and a half. For Native women, for example, they spend a lot more time working deerskins and processing them for the trade rather than doing the more established subsistence practices that they would do day to day. Uh, it also, for Native families and Native nations, they were oftentimes in debt to traders that they were trading these deerskins with. And that was a way that the traders were able to harness the labor of Native hunters and Native traders, as well as their knowledge. But it's important to note that English people could not have made it even 50, 60, 70 miles southwest or northwest of where they started without Native help. The last trade we want to talk about today is the Indian slave trade, which brings together a lot of these different elements that we've already talked about. The first is these extensive trade networks that have existed for generations and generations before English colonization. So those exact trade networks, once Europeans tap into them and create a demand for labor, make people accessible, make them vulnerable, make it so that they can move from one place 
to the next from colony to colony relatively quickly. The second thing is the demand for Indian land. It's a lot easier to claim Indian land if you enslave the people on that land and remove them, either outright or over time. And then finally, we have English traders' demands for profit. So that's Virginian and Carolinian traders moving in to the Piedmont and even west of that in order to enslave people or getting Native people to enslave other Native people. In our case, we're really only going to talk about Virginia because that's how we started this, but it's important to note that around 50,000 people across the Southeast, and that's just an estimate, had been captured, enslaved, and trafficked since the second half of the 17th century onward. And a lot of those people ended up on slave ships and ended up in the West Indies where they ultimately worked on sugar plantations. A really great example of how people were trafficked comes from a man named Lamb Hattie who arrived on a Virginia plantation in what's now Northern Virginia along the Rappahannock River in uh, 1706. Lamb Hattie was taken captive along Mobile Bay in uh, probably what's now modern day Alabama or the panhandle of Florida. He was probably only there around 1704-ish, escaping raids that had been happening deep inside of what's now Florida near the Spanish missions. So he was part of a group of people that had escaped that violence. There was a creek raid on his town. He ended up being taken captive by the Creeks, sold to probably what is the Shawnee, and then moved north. He spent probably a year with them and was on a trip, a hunting trip with them when he found a chance to escape. He found the Mattapanai River and went east and then ended up on the Rappahannock River at the plantation of a random Englishman who uh, saw a naked man with scars permanently around his wrists. And Lamb Hattie then helped uh, Robert Beverly, who became one of the first historians of Virginia, draw a map that demonstrated his travels. But this shows the extent of the slave trade, shows how interconnected all these different nations were in taking part in the slave trade. It's also important to note that African slavery was developing as part of the Virginia economy at the same time. Africans first arrived in Virginia in 1619 amidst all of these other Native American conflicts and the proliferation of African and African-American slavery along the rivers in the coastal plain driven by planters and Englishmen was ultimately part of the reason that so much Indian conflict occurred in the first place. It's important to remember that African enslavement in Virginia developed at the same time as a lot of these explorations and a lot of this expansion onto Indian land was occurring. The first Africans 
we know arrived in 1619 in the middle of all of this native conflict. And the native conflict continued as plantations that were powered by African labor continued to proliferate. The slave trade grew during the second half of the 1600s and into the 1700s. And it was driven by specific English traders, both Virginians and Carolinians, that were already very wealthy, uh, like William Byrd I would probably be the most famous one. They were trading primarily in very young children. So oftentimes, maybe four or five years old, uh, up to a teenager. And Lamb Hattie, who was in his 20s, would have been kind of an exception to that. So the laws oftentimes in Virginia waffled between maybe people that are in bonded labor and are native can escape bondage at age 30, or um, maybe they'll be slaves for the rest of their lives. But in 1682, there was ultimately a law passed in Virginia that said that anyone not born a Christian so that means Native people and that means African, are eligible for slavery for the rest of their lives. And it's likely that even if the law waffled back and forth, most people were held in perpetual bondage. And honestly, like maybe probably wouldn't reach the age of 30 or 24 anyway. Even if a particular English planter never took part in the Indian slave trade, never held bonded Indian labor, they still benefited from the Indian slave trade. And one key way that they did that was through the displacement of Indian people that were then enslaved. A perfect example of this is the Nanzaticos. The Nanzaticos got into trouble with the Virginian government after the supposed murder of a nearby planter. Uh, five adults were hanged for the murder of that planter, all belonging to the Nanzatico Nation. Um, and then the adults were rounded up and sold probably to Antigua. And the children were bonded out to individual planters until they reached adulthood in order to be raised up as Christians. And those children could be as young as one years old. So over the murder of a single planter, the entire Nanzatico Indian nation was destroyed in one single court case. And it was destroyed and their claims to land dissolved using the mechanism of Indian slavery. It's also worth noting that just like Africans and African-Americans over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, Native people inside of bonded systems of labor, whether that's indentured servitude or permanent lifelong slavery, resisted enslavement and oppression spectacularly. Oftentimes they were among the most successful runaways, oftentimes running beyond the boundaries of the colony altogether using the networks that they already had. They might maintain ties to family if that family was nearby, ties to nearby leaders of Native American groups. And they also fought against enslavement 
inside of the court system and through the legal system, oftentimes in battles that took years. It's also important to remember that Native people inside of these bonded systems of labor, whether that's enslavement or indentured servitude or some kind of scary nebulous in between, maintained ties to family if they could. They oftentimes were spectacular runaways, um, oftentimes succeeding in leaving the colony using the networks that they had already had and maintained. They also fought enslavement and other coercive forms of labor inside of the legal system, oftentimes taking part in battles that took literal years in order to escape enslavement. For Native people and Africans and African Americans, and for indentured white servants like William Abram, trade networks also meant an additional resource when it comes to resistance. So overall, the big point that I want you to take away from this is that trade networks contour life for Native Americans before and after colonization at Jamestown. And that colonization is also contoured by those trade networks. When Englishmen land at Jamestown and decide to take goods north or west or south into native territories, what they're doing is contoured by native guides um, by the politics that already exist in those places. That also means that the plantations that populated the coastal plain that perpetuated slavery of both Native Americans and African Americans was also contoured by Indian places. Indian places continue to exist today, but English places now American places like Richmond and Charleston are only there because Indian places and Indian people were there first. Inside of the boundaries of the Commonwealth of Virginia today are 11 state recognized tribes and of those seven are federally recognized Indian nations. And many of those nations today are locked in battles over native places and what happens at those native places. A great example of this is the Monacan Indian Nation, which is currently locked in a battle to save Rasawek, which is the historic capital of the Monacan Indian Nation along the James River, the highways of the time that we were talking about, which is currently under threat of development. Another really great example is the Rappahannock Indian tribes attempts to save land along the Rappahannock River, both for environmental reasons uh, from development and for education of future generations. So these initial trade networks and these initial connections to both the places and to the networks that connect Native people to each other are still contested to this day. So let's talk about Lamb Hattie. What did you guys think of Lamb Hattie and his journey? What was interesting or surprising about that to you? 
Um, I kind of thought like when you said um, he arrived at that random Englishman's uh, plantation, I thought like he was get. I thought he was gonna uh, become enslaved again, um, and not help someone like make that map. Uh, I think it was like Robert Beverly. Um, I had a feeling that he was gonna like become enslaved by someone else. You know, I actually don't know what happened to Lam Hattie. So it could be that he became enslaved after that. Um, well, why did Robert Beverly think that Lam Hattie was so interesting? Like, why write down his story? A student thought it was really interesting that Lam Hattie had migrated basically across, like, that's almost a thousand miles uh, between, like, the M Mobile Bay and then all the way to the Northern Neck to what's now almost like Washington, D.C. Um, so that is extraordinary. It's very like, it's almost its own travel account, like John Smith, who traveled all over the world. Uh, but this is the interior. So what is, what is Robert Beverly um, interested in maybe politically? Like what can he and other planters in Virginia get out of this account? So this helps with... Um understanding the, the geographical area. Um, and, uh, Beverly probably didn't know the, the region as well, uh, but then Lim Hattie had to go through it, and so he did pick up the, the information that Beverly wouldn't have had. And so in this time when there's a gun-slave cycle, um, and a lot of enmity and, and alliances. Um, understanding the geography would be important for Beverly and for the people who would side with him. So for him to get Lem Hattie's account, uh, that would be important for getting a leg up politically. For most, um, for most people in the English colonies, they don't actually know a lot <laughs> beyond what's now Richmond. And that's um, a really big piece of the story is like we, we tend to think about English colonization as like going at least all the way actually literally to Blacksburg, which is where Virginia Tech is, um, because the, the line to cookout, you guys know that crazy line through cookout? So that's actually the proclamation line of 1763 that says like, this is the end of English colonization, runs through the cookout on Main Street. But that's actually a hundred years after, um, well, 60 years after Lamb Hattie. Um, so this is actually just like a tiny country clinging to the coast of a huge continent. And they don't really know much beyond where they're able to plant tobacco. And there's some, um, there's some questions or some guesses in the chat here. Information about other colonies and their economic status and daily operations could be something that Robert Beverly is after. And what, what other colonies are there that maybe the English don't know a lot about? Maybe their big competition in the 17th century. So who owns Florida at this time? or owns Florida at this time. Seminoles. 
uh, what colony? The Spanish <laughs> says like 25 people in the chat. <laughs> Great job. Yes. So um, obviously the English want to know. They know that the Spanish are hanging out like in like the cool places in Florida. They just got like a vacation home on Daytona Beach and they are like checking out some historic stuff in St. Augustine. But how far up into the Carolinas, for example, are the Spanish spying? And like, who are their, most importantly, who are their native allies? Yeah, Beverly is very interested in like what access the Spanish have to what the Virginians want or to actual Virginia. Yes. Let's see. I have to like scroll up past all the people that were like, Spain. Information about other colonies where they'd know where the slave routes were. Yes. So how many of you guys knew that Virginia and Carolina were heavily invested in the Indian slave trade? Got some, got a couple of nods. Okay, cool. Yes. So one of the things that a lot of people don't, don't actually realize is that African slavery and native slavery coexisted and informed each other at the same time. So the traders want to know how to get in on something that they know already is lucrative. Uh, in the chat, if they have a relatively accurate map that represents the geographic locations around them, this could lead plantation operators such as Beverly to trade more easily. Yeah. So if we were to talk about Abraham Wood and his native guides, what is so vital? Why does Abraham Wood who's the trader that is going to the Piedmont in the 1650s. Why does he need a native guide? Why can't he just be like, well, my compass is pointing west, so I'm just gonna like putz that way. It could be because um, first off, the environment in, in the region he was in is just difficult to traverse without a guide and without a map and without knowing where the passes are and where the good places to ford rivers are. It could also be that he just wanted to avoid hostile tribes or people who might want to capture him or that would be hostile to him. One of the biggest things I like recall like reading about was like the copper trade and stuff, like the quote unquote luxury goods that chieftains would use. And like this was just like to have that social standing with the English or whoever else and just kind of keep the peace and but at the same time it like gave the natives like access to things that they normally wouldn't have um like one of the chiefs had like this wine that they had gotten as a gift like a few years back and like during um other important social gatherings like they bring out the wine so it just represented a lot of things in the social standpoint also you know along with like the luxury goods and you know she mentioned the wine but getting things like guns that made it easier to participate in the like slave trade and um, fight against other tribes that they had disputes with. Why would you continue to trade knowing what you know about English people and what they want from native people? Like in the 1650s, 1660s, 1670s. I would say that um, there's a couple reasons. I one would be that appeasement, that uh, leadership in a tribe would find that maybe appeasement would be better than conflict if, or competition 
with colonizers that they think that that path forward might be the best historically. Um, so that could mean trading with them to gain a relationship with them or like seeming like their ally or something like that. Um, and then the other thing was just um, different resources like a, somebody else had mentioned weapons. This could be used for not only, you know, defending against future colonization attempts, but also like wars or conflicts with other tribes as well and give them an upper hand on it as well as the participating in the slave trade. If the leadership decides to do that as well. That was such an interesting term to use appeasement, like from the 20th century and, and world war two. Um, that's super interesting. Um, and also in the chat here, just to uh, emphasize the trade goods and the weapons specifically. So we were talking about the slave trade and guns. Um, some native people became dependent on the goods they received from European settlers is what one student put in the chat. Why are native people dependent on guns? In the chat, the traded items became necessities rather than wants. It got to the point where they had no choice but to trade. So things don't just become like necessities. Like I like, I like love this phone and I have decided it became a necessity. But if I like threw it into the gross ditch outside my house and it like died, I would still be alive, right? So like necessity. Um, so we have... Uh, longer range over bows and arrows. Um, it gave them significant advantage in wars. Uh, guns gave them ability to stand up to colonizers. In the event of armed conflict with other tribes, firearms provide a stronger advantage. I guess those who want to use them primarily in the slave market have weapons. So it's necessity because they're already there. Uh, they were, I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it does. And I think that people in the chat can help out too. So they can't manufacture their own guns and those goods are key items for trade and give other, um, other people an advantage. Um, guns used to enslave other tribes. Okay. So that's exactly, that's exactly, that's key here. So, a couple of folks put in here like, oh, in case there's conflict with other native groups. And there has obviously always been conflict between particular native nations. But what is causing conflict during colonization? Uh, one of the big things was the slave trade. So there'd be some tribes that had created their like economy off of participating in the slave trade. And they would go after other tribes that were either smaller and maybe had less guns or just had no guns and therefore could not really fight against it. That's really key to what happened with Lamb Hattie. And you all also learned about the Yemisee Wars and the Westos. If we're talking about um, people like the Nanzaticos, what happened with the Nanzaticos? Do you all remember? Oh. Here's a here's a comment. They could also be dangerous to own, like in the case of the Nanzaticos, they could be used to pin a murder against a nation and then destroy it, dissolving their claims to land, allowing for more English expansion. Okay, that student just covered what happened with the Nanzaticos. Um, how 
how does what the Nanzaticos, what happened with the Nanzaticos represent the kind of slavery that's happening in Virginia? Why is the case with the Nanzaticos so weird or interesting to us? I think the significance of all of this is just that it's more dangerous in its own just because it all leads towards more land session. Um, and, and in turn, that kind of um, is more dangerous to like tribal sovereignty versus like being a physical person. It kind of destroys like the culture as a whole. So if the land sessions make it so that people are um, pushed off of the land, what does that do to cultural survival? One at the, um, in the chat hinted at this, but essentially with children, you can teach them like the cultural values that you want them to have. And while some children might still remember what they had before then um, by Christianizing them, they're raising them to be more friendly to colonizers. Some practices of culture are tied to the land and our natural resources. So that all together pushes them away from that practice entirely and essentially erases um, that traditional history. Uh, I was going to say also like relating back to the Carlisle school, I remember reading at the beginning of the textbook, it was talking about histories and um you know, the master narrative and stuff like that. And kind of um, as the U.S. expanded, it it, it kind of um, didn't talk about or didn't highlight the atrocities such as these. Um, It kind of made, um, let's see, what's the best way to put it? Um, it It kind of just made the values of liberty and and the U.S. Constitution Declaration of Independence more prevalent over that they were actually committing like, you know, a policy of genocide or something like that. So, um, so yeah, so we're tying land to culture and that's been something since the very beginning of this class. And when you divorce people from the natural resources that they grew up using, the landscape that they know, it's very difficult to keep um, keep certain aspects of culture transferring from generation to generation, particularly if parents are separated from children. So this is this is a common theme that we've seen throughout this class, and then slavery is used as a as a tool to implement that. Were Native people used as plantation slaves? Is a question in the chat. Yes, absolutely. Um, that, so there were people that were shipped away to the Caribbean or were sold to other colonies. Um, but a lot of people ended up being used as either indentured servants or something in between, uh, slavery and indentured servants or as enslaved, um, laborers. And, uh, the wills from the, the, uh, lecture kind of demonstrate that, that people died with, enslaved children in their um, property list. One thing that happens throughout class is that when Native people in the South are displaced, plantation slavery is allowed to grow. And then with the profits from that, very wealthy planters, who are the people that primarily own most of enslaved Africans, 
are then importing people from the Royal African Company. So the displacement of native people is directly tied to the increase in African African American slavery. In, in terms of how native people are able to shape colonization, does trade give them any kind of upper hand in terms of dealing with colonizers? Because remember, they have something that they want. And then someone says in the chat, they were able to use playoff diplomacy and work with the French, English, and Spanish to get what they want. Yes, um, that's very true. And awesome integration of class material. <laughs> so that's very true that these trade networks ran through the claims of multiple colonies. So that gives you a little bit of knowledge about everybody. And remember also here that knowledge is super key. So what are the, some of the things that Native people know about that the English colonizers in Virginia don't know about? Just about anything about the Chesapeake or west of the Chesapeake. Like detailed maps of the land is one, but also um, what resources are dominant in the area. Um, for example, like if, if a planter wanted or a farmer wanted to produce a lot of crop um, to make the most profit off of the land, I would say that natives um, definitely had more knowledge of what resources were best, maybe not necessarily for hunting, for farming, for gathering or whatever. Um, so that was like one commercial benefit anyway. The chat is popping. And the, we see the fur trade here um, that people in those areas and their connections, yes. So understanding who is allied with who is very important. They know the land and could act as translators. Uh, they know the terrain. So that's really important because obviously for folks who are trying to navigate language, like the English are, once you're out into west of where you're from, it's very difficult to see like where you go next other than to follow the river until you can't anymore. Um, resources like what can be grown or if there is a source of arable land. Also potential land borders and political can, and can help with political outings. So like diplomacy, okay, yeah, definitely. Native knowledge is really key to helping English people um, expand what they consider to be their territory. They can't do this without Native people at any point. The resources that Native people provide in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of forced labor, are contouring colonization. And that's really the big key point here. Would not trading with them even impact the end result? Ooh, that's a good question. What do you all think? If, if uh, Wilhelm Seneca chose not to trade with the English, would that have impacted English colonization? You think there would have been a decimation if the colonizers didn't get what they wanted from trade? because the English would have been mad and decided to take things rather than trade. Would different trade relations have formed with other nations? 
Okay, so there's a couple of things here. When when Powhatan was in charge, when Wahan Seneca was in charge in 1607, could the English have decimated the Powhatans? Uh, someone said, no, they did not have the resources at the time. That's exactly right. They don't have the manpower and they don't have the knowledge of the place. And this is, Wahan Seneca even said that. He said, he literally said to John Smith, all I have to do is go into the woods where you can't find me. And John Smith said, okay, you're probably right. So for the first few decades of colonization, it was actually the Powhatans like allowing the English to continue to live there exactly because they wanted some things that the English had and they wanted to trade. Um, someone said um, the English might not have been able to survive their first few years without the help from the native people. That's just objectively true. Like they literally like fed them for sure. Um, so good job there. Uh, the tribes that didn't trade had a disadvantage compared to other tribes that did trade. So we see this with, uh, for example, the Monacans at the very beginning, that we know that the, the Monacans were later involved in the fur trade, but for a while they said, I'm not interested in getting to know you. Uh, if you come near me, I'm just going to like walk away. So is that a good strategy? For some tribes that did work out, like with the Seminoles for a while and the Maroons, um, but I think with a lot of the tribes that lived in areas that had that very good arable land, the British weren't going to like say, oh, we'll leave you alone for now because it's somewhere we're not interested in. They were interested in it, so they specifically were targeting people on that land. Yeah. Yes. So the land is really key here. The fight over land is really integral to understanding trade networks and Indian slavery. Absolutely. And then someone says in the chat, the British rule made more attempts to allow Native American autonomy and sovereignty than the subsequent United States. So it may have only delayed the inevitable. So the idea being that I think no matter what, what's happening is going to happen anyway. Do we like that idea? I don't necessarily agree with that idea because um, if, you know, if English settlers would have died because they didn't have help, who there, there's really no telling if the United States would have even been a country. That's how I look at it anyway. Yeah. One thing that we try to emphasize in this class and in every class, but in this class, it's really hard is that there is no inevitability and people kind of make choices. Um, so like the British, allowing autonomy and sovereignty, like they do that with like allowing, you know, sovereignty as in like and respecting the sovereignty of other nations. Like they do that in some cases. And then in some cases they enslave an entire nation and sell them to Antigua. Um, and it's sort of dependent on the time period and the people involved and like the strategies that they come up with. So it's a, that's a, a, a great thinker that this person put. 
in the chat. I think um, what another student just said about they want the land, they'll target the land. It goes back to like native knowledge of the land. So if they, if you if the colonizers can obtain native knowledge, they can exploit it, and then that can also help them develop strategies. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So even just knowing where native people are farming, it's like cool. I'm gonna start right there because um, it's already cleared and clearly it's working. Um, but also like native knowledge of trade networks, absolutely. How does Indian networks of trade and and Indian slavery affect life for Native people today? So this happened 400 years ago, but Native people still live in Virginia and are actively involved in Commonwealth politics and federal politics. How do we see what happened in the 17th century affecting politics now? Racial stereotypes created at the time still are seen today. Yeah, so the um, one of the big ones that comes up um, that directly allies with what happened to the Nanzaticos is that like Native people don't have the same kind of claims to land that English people do um, or that they're not using the land appropriately. Uh, legal battles over land. Yes, in Virginia, um, that's the case, especially with important cultural sites. Um, land back movement and reparations. Ooh, yes. Um, what a great example. And um, generational trauma. Native people today are trying hard to recover from the past, but the US government is not making it easy. Yeah, so that relates to a lot of our other readings about the 19th and 20th centuries, for sure. Uh, Native jurisdiction has limits, and we see this unfold in uh, Louise Erdich's The Roundhouse. Um, This can be seen in The Roundhouse, where the federal government makes it really hard to get basic justice. uh, And we are still denying Native people the right to make legal decisions on their own land. Okay. Yeah, so the big thing to remember is that all of the areas that we're talking about were not just like native land and in terms of farming, but also like native networks and connections to one another. So the political landscape was native as well. And back in the chat, even though native tribes are recognized, what natives find is important is not seen as important to the U.S., Um, This goes along with not having the ability to make decisions over land and people. Yeah. Do we have um, specific examples of that? Ooh, someone put in the chat, like the North Dakota pipeline and not respecting native land. Like the, like trade routes are so limited now that it affects native culture. Like native, like uh, native culture is very heavily dependent on trade between native Americans endless, you know, 1600s. And um, since there are, there is an absence of trade routes now that native culture is being affected negatively. It's worth noting that a lot of the, um, a lot of the roads that you guys take to get to Blacksburg or to get to Northern Virginia or Washington, DC, uh, were at one point native roads. 
Um, and that's what's super interesting about how colonization works is it's not a totally new landscape ever. Um, history is always deposited in layers. And what is looks very modern to us is actually uh, predates colonization in some cases. Awesome. And then someone put in there about the pipeline, how the pipeline is barely talked about in the news perfectly describes the invisibility that natives go through and how they find it very difficult to make their voices heard. Yes, definitely. Great job. Um, someone put, we always talk about how native people have been erased from history with the master narrative, nice use of calls, but it's important to recognize that they are still being erased through the continual loss of land or issues like the pipeline, which is like a, res a respective native sovereignty, right? All right. Yeah, sorry. Um, so we've, we've talked about their own land a lot, um, which is a funny term because it's, okay, who's decided what their land is? It's um, the colonizers or the federal government. Um, and so... That's just interesting because that's like that's as fickle as um, the the one who's in control who has the power to say what that means. Um, like earlier, we were talking about how um, the name of Christianity, um, a whole tribe was was um, sold to be culturally appropriated or assimilated. Um, although, you know, if you, you know, if you read the Bible, your theology might be challenged. That's <laughs> your, your view. Um, and, and when we say their own land, um, and just how, how quickly you can, um, you can switch the, you can change, turn the tables on that. Uh, whenever it's convenient, it's like it's as fickle as human rights, and I think those do go hand in hand pretty well here. Um, so right now, we would say that human rights are are you know based on what? Based on a, a UN resolution because a few powerful states got together and decided this is what humans should should deserve um, because that's just as just as fickle as a federal government saying like this is your land and this is what you can't do in it when we talk when historians talk about maps and things like that we always look at them as not literal like they're always someone saying like this is what i would like to have like it's more of a wish list um and even in this class, we use the language of human rights and civil rights and things like that, that native people might not use all the time. Um, but it's hard to extricate our, the way we use language um, as university students and professors from the ways that people in power use them because we find them legitimate. Um, and that's, that's a big part of this, is that what is legitimate is always changing based on who's in power. Um, so your point is very well taken, that especially when we're looking at sources uh, like 
uh, Robert Beverly and Lamb Hattie, who knows what Lamb Hattie actually said versus what Robert Beverly found important to write down. Um, and that's, that's in those little moments is how history is made. Lectures in History is a weekly podcast taking you to the classrooms of some of the country's leading universities. Thanks for listening. You might also be interested in another C-SPAN podcast, Book Notes Plus. Just like our long-running Book Notes program, Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. The 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.